Hello, I'm Greg, and welcome to a Talkback episode. I'm veering back into inappropriate conversations this time, away from Walk the Earth for a little bit, in fact, probably for the whole month of October. And I want to get into, initially, a look back to an episode about made-for-TV movies, about television kind of in general, recorded in January of 2011, the very first January of Inappropriate Conversations, episode 42. And along the way, I'd also like to cite something new that I'm doing on Facebook, uh, moderating or one of the moderators of a page called Made for TV Program Direction. It's a public group. The idea behind it is to just kind of begin calling out uh, old favorites, uh, nostalgic shows, things we remember, movies in my case, that I'd like to see again, that I remember seeing when I was young, maybe even very young, that were made for TV. And therefore, in the intervening decades, they've been less and less valued. It's harder to get the same currency about getting a DVD re-release or uh, getting anything, heaven forbid, on streaming for made-for-TV movies. When it happens these days, I see it often as not more likely to be occurring on Amazon Prime, frankly, than Netflix. And it struck, struck me that there was an opportunity there. So far since this page was started a little less than a year ago, I've made 59 citations for Movies of the Week, or me and the group have, 39 sort of general, kind of nostalgic lookbacks, 29 references to old TV series, 11 pilots, which is a concept which brings Movies of the Week and TV series kind of together, and 7 I'm calling special presentations because there's not much more you can do with it. The Star Wars Holiday Special, for example. Not a TV series, not a TV show, not a made-for-TV movie. Um, and maybe the special on special presentations for that one in particular, you could put the air quotes around it. Again, it's a public group. Um, welcome to any and all input and feedback on the topic of, hey, if there was going to be a, a streaming service or a TV channel, um, kind of the original intent of American movie classics way, way, way back at the beginning of cable, but doing so from the perspective of a very particular look at made-for-TV only, Within that seemingly narrow, but really quite broad confine, there's a lot that can be said. And it ties into this look back to Inappropriate Conversations 42. Because that episode, which I called The Morning After for Classic Made-for-TV Movies, January 11th, 2011, was all about uh, things I miss from back in the day of made-for-TV and, and nostalgia. And one thing I'll call out right at the beginning, true of all the look-back episodes, frankly, all these talkbacks, but it's especially true of this one, uh, it just calls to mind that it's really hard to sit and record for even half an hour, let alone longer than that, without making mistakes, without getting something wrong, um, mispronouncing a name, mispronouncing a word, inadvertently committing the subject-verb-disagreement you know, kind of thing that would get you the red pen back in English and grammar school, these things just happen, especially when you're a, a lone speaker, I suppose. Uh, there's not really an opportunity for me to take a break, regroup, let someone else take over. So mistakes will creep in. On this one, there's a couple that jump out at me. In the heart of the uh, episode itself, when I was mentioning the movie A Short Walk to Daylight, in my mind, nostalgia being what it is, memory being what it is, I recalled Carol Lindley, the actress from that era, being part of the cast. And it was one of the reasons I wanted to see the show again. And I don't know if I was confusing the disaster film vibe of A Short Walk to Daylight with other movies like Flood, which she was in. 
But I was very surprised when I finally got a really, really thin copy, I guess is what you'd call it, on YouTube and was able to watch the made-for-TV movie starring um, James Brolin again that Carol Lindley wasn't in the cast at all. These are the mistakes that'll happen. Memory being what it is. My mind playing tricks on me. In other cases, it's just the choice, choice of the wrong word that if you don't catch it in the edit or if you catch it late in the edit, it can be pretty hard to fix. In the Different Drummer segment for Inappropriate Conversations 42, I named Dan Carlin. And back then, uh, Dan Carlin was one of the three major podcast groups, whether they're networks or families or what, that I was paying a lot of attention to. And it's funny that you know Dan Carlin only recently released a new episode after several months of hiatus on the common sense side. And on the hardcore history side of his world, always moving at the snail's pace that we've become accustomed to, when you're kind of um, a fan of somebody producing shows that are often three or four hours long, even longer. It takes time, in other words. In talking about Dan Carlin, I mentioned um, I misspoke, and instead of describing him as he describes himself as somebody who's neither liberal nor conservative, but views himself as a neo-prudentist, I chose the wrong suffix there. Got the neo right, got the prudentist wrong. These things will happen in the course of plessing pressing the record button, and just talking away. The other thing that's true with talkback episodes is that some of the information is dated. So there'll be references to uh, the older way of getting in touch with the website side of inappropriate conversations. The right answer now is inappropriateconversations.org. Inappropriateconversations.com also does a redirect. That's how to get to the website version of this particular podcast, which I view as a cause. This also is an episode going so far back that at that time I wasn't part of Facebook at all. So in addition to being one of the moderators of the Made for TV program direction page, there are also pages on Facebook for both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. On Twitter, I interact for both of those podcasts, plus whatever else I happen to be doing, as IC underscore Greg. And I am still in the process of working through posting hints and clips, uh, audio edits, if you will, of uh, the past Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth podcasts shared on SoundCloud. Again, most of the time, not full episodes, but enough to give you a sense of what the show is about, more than just what the blurb would provide. And on SoundCloud, I'm also IC underscore Greg. As always, I do interact uh, the same email address I've had from the very beginning, IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. The other thing to note is there might be references to other shows, shows on networks like Simply Syndicated and Take Him With You, or even promos, which are now out of date because those shows have pod faded or otherwise disappeared. And that will happen because I'm not re-editing these old shows. I'm talking back. It's in every sense an echo. But I will do what I've done for the last couple of episodes and what I intend to continue to do going forward with talkbacks and that's take advantage of an introductory segment to deal in very short form with an inappropriate conversation's perspective about things which otherwise might be current events. As I've said many times, inappropriate conversations is often going to try to dodge the bullet of current events. I prefer to have more time, more perspective, and to have the ability to cultivate and develop different angles on things which isn't always easy to do if you're reacting to what just happened today or what just happened yesterday. But obviously the news for the day, here in the middle of October, at the time that I'm recording, is what is going to happen next with the U.S. Supreme Court. 
I am recording this while the U.S. Senate is still at a breakneck pace trying to finish confirmation hearings so that before President Trump is facing election, or actually more accurately, during the process of him facing re-election, they can slap somebody onto the court to fill a vacancy before they get what the Republicans seemingly believe is going to be very bad news in the early part of November. So, in that light, I'm looking at the court not from the perspective of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and who may replace her, but instead of some of the chatter we're hearing. And I like to think of it as primarily being a bunch of chatter from existing conservative judges. I believe we're about to take a pivot into an era of conservative political activism, judicial activism, all the things which for years conservatives have complained about a uh, judicial balance on the court or a slight liberal majority on the report, and all of these pontifications about the evils of activism, we're about to see, in my opinion, in my fears actually, some serious activism in the other direction. And just like with the handling of a Supreme Court vacancy this late in the presidential election cycle, I think we're going to see one heck of a lot of cons- you know, of just hypocrisy, even conspiracy perhaps, from people who have called themselves historically conservative, who would like for us to believe that they have strict constructionist views and that how they approach things is very predictable because they're only trying to be, in some degree, originalists or primitivists when it comes to America's founding documents. I think we're going to find a lot of what they've said in the past to be just a load of garbage, and they're about to throw it out and engage in their own sort of conservative-led court rampage of judicial activism. One example of this is some of the bewildering things which have been said by justices like Thomas and Alito about upcoming opportunities to revisit the Obergefell case and perhaps even undo the Supreme Court's decision on marriage equality. That in and of itself, again, disappointing because of its hypocrisy, but not necessarily surprising that these two justices feel that way. What to me was surprising the most was their logic, or utter lack of logic. The claim that they were making was that there was no real reason for the Supreme Court to have heard the case in the first place, that that issue should not have come before them, and therefore they were just going to undo a mistake of judicial overreach at the Supreme Court level. But the question I've been asking people lately, especially when it's so clear that people like Vice President Mike Pence do not really have much of a clue or at least profess beliefs which suggest they do not have much of a clue on how the legislative and judicial processes work. If, for example, uh, candidate Joe Biden says that if president, he would reverse much of the tax breaks that were put in for the extremely wealthy of the wealthiest of the wealthiest of Americans early in the Trump term, uh, Pence seemed to suggest on the debate stage anyway that from his perspective that meant that anybody who was middle class who got the benefits of that tax code would suddenly lose it. But that's not how legislative behavior works. Joe Biden doesn't have the ability to pill up, pick up a pen and unsign law. Whatever Trump as president signed into law is going to stay law until Congress presents Biden a new bill to sign. And it's very easy to see how a new bill could keep some parts of a middle class tax break and get rid of other parts that seem to protect corporations and even some individuals from having to pay taxes at all despite making multi-billions of dollars per year. You can, in other words, address the top tenth of a percent of wage earners 
or salary or wealth holders in this country without having to do a complete mirror undoing of that previous tax bill line by line and amendment by amendment. It doesn't take even a middle school understanding of civics to grasp this concept, which suggests that the current vice president of the United States does not have a middle school understanding of civics. Flip that on its head. When you send people from the Department of Justice to make arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court to declare the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional, you do not have the ability to get the justices to declare it unconstitutional but somehow protect pre-existing conditions. So when the Biden and Harris camp have been saying that the president is simultaneously telling people he's the champion of protections for them in the areas of pre-existing conditions, while also arguing before the Supreme Court, where if his lawyers are persuasive, the Affordable Care Act and all the protections for pre-existing conditions will disappear at the bang of the Chief Justice's gavel. That is how the U.S. Supreme Court works. They are not legislatures. They do not legislate. If they're asked to overturn a law, the law is gone. All the provisions of the law, including attractive provisions of the law, and the Trump administration doesn't seem to recognize that they have serious work to do, legislative responsibilities, um, to some degree their own lobbying responsibilities out to the industry if they intend to, on the fly, slap together some new solution to protect the same pre-existing conditions that they are asking the Supreme Court to strike down. This is, again, Civics 101, and somehow key people in the current White House have missed that basic American history education. How does this tie back to marriage equality and the views of Thomas Alito and perhaps others on the court? Well, it's simply this. These conservative justices are making an argument that there was no reason why the Supreme Court should have been called to make a decision about marriage equality at all. Oh, really? To me, what happens if those justices do somehow ram through some ruling that would completely uh, overturn that decision? Does that mean that marriage equality disappears? Does that mean that some sort of conservative shadow is cast across the land? No. 36 states had, at the state level, legalized marriage equality before we got to the point of hearing arguments before the Supreme Court in 2014 and 15, in that period of time. By the time the Obergefell ruling came down, the number of states was 36. Now, it is possible that the Supreme Court, by invalidating that ruling, would have an impact on states in that part of the country. So maybe the Great Lakes region would lose a few, but at the very least... You're still talking about half the country where states are recognizing the rights of men and men who love each other to marry, and women and women who love each other to marry, and the other half not. And part of the reason that this became a crisis that was inevitably going to go to the Supreme Court is that some of the more, let's call them red states in our country, had not only said out loud that they, they weren't interested in honoring the legality of the marriages that people had had in ceremonies and in public documents in other states, some of them actually were going through the legislative process to pass laws that would legislatively refuse, that would more affirmatively say, we're not going to recognize the implied contract of marriage coming from those other states. Meaning you had a situation where some states in the United States of America, exercising their rights as, uh, you know, to somewhat Federal, federalistically sovereign entities had decided that it was perfectly appropriate for 
consenting adults to be married without regard for gender, sexual orientation, so forth and so on. There were other provisions that mattered, of course, uh, age, coercion, etc., but not two consenting adults who happened to be of the same gender wanting to get married, but at the same time, less than half, but a significant number of other states were not making the same decision. So you end up in a situation where a citizen of one state who is you know, maybe voluntarily or perhaps even forced by an employer to move to another state, to take up residence in another state for business reasons, now suddenly has been stripped of their rights because they've crossed state lines or even traveling on vacation and your husband becomes seriously ill during, during a uh, time off, during a, a holiday of sorts. And the state you lived in, you would, of course, be recognized as that person's spouse and be given all the privileges in terms of you know, access to that person and input to medical decisions, the hospital stuff, right? You'd be recognized as having those legal rights. But in the United States of America, in the middle of the 2010s, you actually had states that were not only benignly indifferent at best to whether those rights should exist when you've crossed state lines into a state that doesn't have quote-unquote gay marriage. But you also had states actively passing laws saying, we're not even going to honor your rights of attorney, your power of attorney documents. We're not even going to respect the way things were before. That We're certainly not going to acknowledge you as husband and husband. But we're also not going to do anything to help streamline the process of getting the person that the ill man wants most at the bedside at his moment of greatest need in a medical crisis, we're going to try to stand in the way of that too. If this situation as I've described it, which I believe has been described accurately, is not the kind of crisis where the judiciary should step in, then I believe that um, Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas should step down immediately from the their positions on the United States Supreme Court their understandings of the United States Constitution, of the interaction between state and federal rights, um, are clearly so insufficient that they are no longer qualified to serve in the positions that they've, that they've been nominated and, and appointed to. Because the reality is, this conflict from state to state is exactly the type of thing that the U.S. Supreme Court has to come in and weigh in on. Now, had no states made any overtures toward re- refusing to recognize the contractual agreements that citizens in one state enter into when they travel to another, if they just let it lie, if they just sat quietly by, maybe you could make an argument that the situation had not risen to the level of the court intervening just yet. But that is not where we were in 2015, and it is not where we will be if the justices look at this again and make, in my opinion, what will be a wrong decision. Because it is untenable from an interstate commerce perspective. It's untenable for there to be a valid contractual relationship and agreement in one state that is affirmatively dishonored across the border in another state. There's an assumption that contracts will be honored between states. And if you get to a situation where uh, state by state to something like a 36 in favor to 14 opposed kind of a divide You've got firmly entrenched positions about whether or not you're going to recognize marriages from one state to the next. You absolutely have a problem that calls for U.S. Supreme Court intervention. So pardon me if I have two problems. One is I'm not convinced that a newly constructed nine-member panel is going to make wise decisions on questions like this. I have serious doubts about whether two of the current eight even have the first clue what they're talking about. Now, this has nothing to do with the topic of 
made-for-TV movies in the late 60s and early 70s, which is a lot of the sweet spot for me on the conversation that I'm going to share again in a talkback episode today. But one of the things I liked best about those made-for-TV movies back in the day is that they weren't afraid to be cutting-edge. They weren't afraid to deal with issues. And sometimes we look back at how those telefilms dealt with issues from our perspective now and view them as a little bit quaint. But when you look at them in the context of what was going on in television for the decades prior, it was still, whether quaint or not, cutting edge. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the morning after for classic made-for-TV movies. spoken about television much. I think as you can tell, if you've listened to other episodes of Inappropriate Conversations, that I do spend a lot of time talking about music and movies, particularly films, from a variety of countries and eras. But I haven't done too much with television. But before I get into the topic for today and really trying to talk about some of the best parts of television broadcasting that have left us seemingly for good, I want to begin by calling out that our different drummer will be Dan Carlin. In the very first inappropriate conversation, I cited three sets of podcasts that I simply don't miss. I don't miss the Rick Moyer show, Take Him With You. I don't miss very much, if anything, that's put out on the Simply Syndicated network. And if you haven't been to www.simplysyndicated.com lately, you're going to find an ever-expanding palette of programs there, and, and they've grown even recently. But the other one that I don't miss is Dan Carlin. And as soon as I see something on the feed from him, I put it onto my player. And Common Sense may be a particular example of that. So the different drummer today will be Dan Carlin. We'll get to him in a minute. But part of the reason I wanted to introduce the idea that Dan Carlin was going to be the different drummer was to say that the connection between the different drummer and the topic is both much more direct than usual, and might catch a lot of people completely off guard. So I want to build a little suspense here and say, hey, you know, I'm going to talk about, you know, made-for-television movies, particularly from the late 1960s through to the late 1970s. And when I get done, this, the transition to uh, Dan Carlin will be just absolutely seamless. So here we go. As I said from the start, I think one of the very best television programs that has been canceled over my lifetime has involved made-for-TV movies. Now, that's a bold statement. Um, television executives, as a rule, have a pretty bad reputation, and I suppose that it's easy to get one. If you pull the plug on a show like Firefly uh, after only one year here recently, or Joan of Arcadia after two seasons, not long before that, or going all the way back perhaps to when I was very, very young, the original Star Trek uh, that came out, uh, you can find countless examples of shows canceled before their time, or perhaps other programs that were harmed by being allowed to live past their prime. But one of the ones that I think I miss the most is ABC's Tuesday Night Movie of the Week. 
Now, that seems kind of odd, but back in the 1970s, it wasn't that unusual to see a TV series, you know, a, a one program that appeared on the same time slot every night under the same banner heading, have completely different casts of characters, completely different plot lines, and even completely different genre. Uh, I, I believe it was NBC for a while who had a whole series of rotating 90-minute programs that they would put on where you'd have uh, McLeod and Columbo and McMillan and Wife and Madigan taking their time in the, in the spotlight. I might be wrong about Madigan. That might have been over on CBS, alternating with shows like The Name of the Game. And one of the networks had a whole police series episode where the law and order would be the plot line, but it would have completely different sets of characters. You wouldn't be dealing with the same police officers. You wouldn't be dealing even necessarily in the same city week to week as the plot lines kind of grew and evolved. So it wasn't really unusual for television back then to not necessarily feel like it had to have one stable cast of characters and week in and week out deal with them. And no better example of that is the um, Tuesday night, mainly Tuesday night TV series on ABC called the movie of the week, where essentially at that point in time, the television network said, you know what? We need to produce films too. And in doing so, we need to bring the viewer into those by giving them a consistent place to find them. It started off for ABC on Tuesday night. Later, it would become Wednesday. And I think they even had a Saturday or a Sunday run of it as well. But it's that particular TV series that I want to finish with. But in the interest of fairness and sticking with the idea of focusing on networks, I want to cover all the major three U.S. networks that dominated television at the time I was born, and that would be NBC, CBS, and ABC. But first, I guess a question that has to be lingering out there, if I think the qualities of these movies were so good, and they're no longer being made, and they're not around, and most of them, when we talk about them, aren't even in reruns, what happened? Why am I just wrong? Am I just, you know, suffering from a severe case of nostalgia? That's a possibility. But it's also possibly true that these kinds of films simply were squeezed out by changes in the way television itself operates. It's easy to point to HBO and, of course, now to Encore, Cinemax, um, Showtime, all the other pay movie channels and point to those and say, well, that's the reason. But I think it also has a lot to do with the motion picture rating system and the fact that once you could call out that this movie is rated R, it then made it a little bit easier, I think, for television to bring those films to TV, edit down the parts that the MPAA would have objected to or guess what those parts would be and slap a parental warning on them. Now, it was quite a while before I think I was allowed to watch any movie that was in a theater that had been rated R. I can remember being forbidden on more than one occasion to watch even the cleaned up TV version of Rosemary's Baby. But ABC did sort of a knockoff version of that same concept called The Stranger Within, starring Barbara Eden, put out somewhere in the middle of the 1970s, and that one I was allowed to watch. It was a made-for-TV movie. It was safe. And as the theatrical movies showing on television in sort of rerun, I guess we would call it, began to become more consistent, you know, more popular, more normal, the made-for-TV movie got squeezed out. But the other thing that has kept any sort of resurgence in the desert, which sometimes looks like we have a desert of modern television, and I, I would say that's for like at least 15 years now, one of the things keeping the made-for-TV movie concept from coming back, well, budget is one. Obviously, the, the palette of the movie viewer has become much more refined, and you can't put out a thriller, a horror movie, a monster movie uh, as a made-for-TV film, or even a disaster flick, like the Irwin Allen stuff, as a made-for-TV film, unless you're going to have at least a quality of special effect that is not cheap. 
So that's happened in there as well. But the other thing is I think that this kind of programming has been squeezed out by schlock TV. There's two kinds of schlock TV I'll talk about. One of them is reality TV. I'm not going to go into any detail there. At some point, I might find myself putting in a show that just rants about it because it's not real. It's not realistic. It's not constructive or helpful. It's not dramatically meaningful. It has very low aesthetic quality. Uh, it's not even as good as an old candid camera rerun. Given the choice between watching your typical average reality TV show or a very early version of candid camera, I'd rather watch that. You know, the truth is that's going to be a better TV viewing experience. I would say that this also applies to things like American Idol. So I give no reality TV any quarter whatsoever. For me, the only quote unquote reality TV I watch is sports. But the other problem is that cable moved in and took over a big chunk of the let's make our own movies game. And that might be good if some of those films were really outstanding. But I think the movies that I'm going to cite that go back 30 plus years have a higher standard to them than the things that we're seeing made today with even a bigger budget on networks like Lifetime. The Lifetime TV movie that you get today is essentially a cookie cutter made by the numbers film where the women who love too much are hooked up somehow with the men who lead double lives. And they're exploring the gray area of whether women are really from Venus and whether men are really from Mars, the low esteem that these filmmakers seem to have for their very core audience. It's not just that they're not looking to attract an audience of people like me. It's as if their view of their own audience is so dim that they can give them more or less the same thing over and over and over again. And it's killed the creativity. One thing to listen for as I go through lists, and I'm going to do a, at least one top 10 list, is the variety that's represented there. I'm going to talk about films that were commissioned and made specifically for television, dealing with plot lines that are much more varied than anything you're ever going to find, you know, made specifically for a cable channel like Lifetime or Oxygen. And that's sad. Let me start this exploration of made-for-TV movies and what made-for-TV movies um, so good in this period by citing a resource and then jumping into one of my absolute favorites. So a couple years ago at a library book sale, which is roughly the equivalent of a garage sale because you're picking up other people's used items that they've donated specifically so that they hope somebody like me would find something I like and get it at a deep discount price where all the proceeds go to support the local library. The book I'm holding is by Alvin H. Murrell, published in 1984. Now, I bought it only very recently for a couple of bucks. It's called Movies Made for Television, the Telefeature and the Miniseries 1964 to 1984. Now, partly because of my interest and maybe perhaps because of my age, both when I was too young to care about TV and also when I was teenager enough that I also didn't care that much about TV, I'm going to start a little later than 64 and I'm going to stop much, much sooner than 84 but I found this to be an incredibly valuable resource because you got, you know, 400 plus pages with almost 1,700 capsule reviews of movies, cast list, director, producer, in the order that they were telecast with the network they were telecast in. So that's my resource. And I do that partly to, uh, first off, to give the man credit. Uh, this was one of the most exciting finds that I'd ever found because a lot of the movies that I'm going to list for you, I didn't know the name of. Uh, it was reading this book that called to mind what the name of the movie was and, and when it came out and when I might have seen it and what, made of, what might have led me to remember it vaguely enough that I, I wanted to know what it was. So part of that is to call that out. But also, if I get some of the network or year designations wrong, I, I'm citing the, the best resource I have available because truthfully... If you try to mine through the records of reasonably good movie websites like um, 
www.allmovie.com, part of the AMG, All Media Guide family of, of websites, or IMDb. It's not that easy to go in there and seek and find specific made-for-television movies, and especially in my case, where in some cases I, I couldn't remember an actor name, didn't remember a year or a network, just had kind of a vague memory of how I felt when I was watching the show. The other potential disclaimer here is that I'm I'm going off the assumption that what this book is calling a made-for-TV movie truly is. And the research that I did, that I enjoyed, but research nonetheless, reminded me that, hey, there's a lot of things that I saw that I thought were made-for-TV movies that really weren't made-for-TV at all. When you see a kind of a a crazy monster movie, horror, science fiction gone wrong, you know, laugh fest, unintentional laugh fest, like Night of the Lapis, where uh, radioactive mutant bunnies run run havoc in a small town, it's natural to think that that must have been made for television, because the special effects quality and all that, it's just, it's just not high enough that you'd look at it and say, well, yeah, that's, that's the theatrical release of somebody who was working roughly in the same time that Steven Spielberg's career was taking off. Yeah, it's, it's nuts to think that that might be true. So there are a lot of things that I put off the list, because I realized, hey, they weren't made for TV at all. So starting with this book, he cites perhaps the first ever made-for-TV movie in the series that he, wants to re- that he wants to capture in his publication, See How They Run, from October 1964. I didn't see it, or at least I don't remember seeing it, and I'm not going to talk about it. I want to start with a good one. I want to start with a good one that's technically available, um, but not one that most people have likely seen. And not the kind of film that you're going to you know, find on a video store shelf or find on Netflix or anything like that. The first one that I would put up is The Pinnacle. Maybe not the first I can remember, but the one I remember seeing vaguely enough to say, that was good enough to see again when I'm older enough to really get it all. Because I was probably too young to capture the plot line of a film from 1969 that was broadcast on NBC called Run a Crooked Mile. I mentioned Run a Crooked Mile technically being available now because it is. If you go to YouTube, this is one of those films that I think has probably become public domain. It's become nobody's domain because the people who made it are no longer defending it. And it's not available. It it doesn't rerun very often. And it's a film with Louis Jourdain as the lead actor, Mary Tyler Moore as the lead actress, a spy thriller set in 1969 London and uh, late Geneva, Switzerland, and some of the English countryside as well, where um, the main character is a math teacher who stumbles across a conspiracy at the highest levels of British society to manipulate economies, uh, mess around with the gold standard, make a lot of money. And in the process of, you know, again, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, stumbles across this conspiracy, believes he's eyewitness to murder. And from there, there's amnesia, there's uh, conspiracies, double crosses, the whole nine yards, run a crooked mile. You know, there's something about watching a film on YouTube where you're seeing maybe 10 minutes at a time. And if your computer isn't the fastest at building pages, sometimes you get caught up in the, the, the streaming process and the building process can really be frustrating. And some of the chapters that are out there, uh, some of the parts that are up on YouTube, don't have the soundtrack perfectly in sync with the film itself. So it, it's a work. It's an investment to catch a film like this. But you can get a sense that today when we think of made-for-TV movies, we think, well, somebody took a shortcut on the locations, took a shortcut on the quality or at least the fame of the actors. Uh, in this case, not at all the case, because Louis Jordan and Mary Tyler Moore were fairly well-known at the time. This is before the Mary Tyler Moore show, but she'd been on the Dick Van Dyke show, so people knew who she was. And the locations may have seemed just 
you know, I'm sure to the people who are making the film, they're just, well, let's shoot in London, let's shoot in Switzerland. But now it's cool because it's 40 years ago, authentic London, and 40 years ago, authentic Switzerland. So there's a time capsule quality to run a crooked mile. And the quality of films that I'm talking about, if you just, you know, sample a bit of those, uh, those YouTube clips, you don't even need to see the whole thing. You can get a sense that there's something here. You know, that there, was a, there was a spark here, that this was true filmmaking in a way that maybe a lifetime TV movie really isn't. Not the first NBC made-for-TV movie that I remember seeing, though. The first one, or at least the oldest one, and I'm sure I saw it in rerun later, came out originally in 1967 called The Longest Hundred Miles. And this one was Ricardo Montalban, Doug McClure, and Catherine Ross in a World War II adventure story where a stranded U.S. GI partners with a priest, uh, Montalban's character, to help a group of uh, nuns or orphans, schoolchildren or whatever, escape what is clearly going to be the Japanese military takeover of an island. So you've got a running from the military, you've got, you know, concealing potential you know, war crime victims from the people who might victimize them, that kind of plot line. When you find a film like The Longest Hundred Miles on IMDb, it, it's being compared to things, you know, other films that would have been higher quality, big budget Hollywood war movies. I mean, this is nowhere near the quality of a film like Platoon or Apocalypse Now. But when you consider the budget, and that's where this really kicks in, because these aren't you know, Roger Corman experiments where let's see how much we can make with almost no budget, but it's very low budget filmmaking, and the quality that you get back from the budgets that were there is undeniably impressive. Some other NBC efforts that I recall from when I was a kid, Shadow Over Elveron, Originally 1968, this was set in Southern America, and it had a clear uh, corrupt law officer racism kind of storyline where there was a crime involved, and, and the good guy was trying to overcome corruption on lots of levels. Don't remember much more about it. The number one, really, vehicle, I think, for these television broadcasts of made-for-TV movies, though, was the airing of pilots. Now, as most people know, a pilot is a program, a movie, for want of a better word, shot to be the example of a future TV series. So you get together, you shoot the pilot. If the pilot is successful, it actually becomes a regular weekly show, whether that's cop drama, whether that's a, a sitcom, whatever it may be. And often the first uh, pilot episode these days is the length of what the show will become. But back then, it wasn't unusual for the pilot to be quote-unquote movie length, for it to be more like 90 minutes or even two hours if ultimately the program was intended to be a one-hour you know, TV drama of some sort. And NBC had some of the better known. Uh, Night Gallery was perhaps my favorite on NBC. <clears throat> it was a, a horror thriller anthology show where on any given week when it was aired in its 30-minute chunks, you might see a couple of 15-minute vignettes where uh, short stories on television is the way I would describe them, but short stories with, uh, with sort of a Rod Serling mentality. Night Gallery aired as a pilot, originally in a 90-minute telecast, if I'm not mistaken, where one of the sequences starring Joan Crawford was directed by um, Steven Spielberg. So when you look at the, again, the quality we're talking about, Steven Spielberg, when he was working in these sort of made-for-TV movies was not an inept director who was learning his way and didn't know what he was doing. He was a young, upcoming director who was pretty much unknown, but was working within the budgets and within the constraints of the scripts that he was given. The original Night Gallery pilot is actually well worth the time, featuring strong performances by Roddy McDowell and Joan Crawford in the first couple of, of episodes in that series. And then the last vignette of that 
original pilot is actually my favorite. It has a an ex-Nazi who is running from a Nazi hunter who finds a way to wish himself into a picture to escape ultimately and permanently escape not only the world that he was living in as somebody who'd lost a war, but the mistakes of his past. And, and the twist ending there is just unbelievably good. Other pilots that aired on NBC, Columbo, per- perhaps the most famous, and Probe. Probe, I think, later aired on U.S. television under the TV series name Search. So if I'm getting this wrong in my head, I was you know pretty young back then, but whether you use the words probe or search for what the title of the show was, uh, it doesn't matter. The, the pilot was a pretty good representation of what the show would turn out to be. And essentially, the idea was that you had this, I believe, a private detective organization, for want of a better word, that had extremely good technology. I mean, like um, the Bridge of Star Trek kind of technology. And the ability to speak into the ear of their agents and see through the eyes of their agents to where if their agents were doing you know, undercover work, you know, many, many, many miles away, um, the home base could see what was going on and could provide advice and, and a little bit of a mission impossible kind of a flair to it, except it was centered around one particular character as the investigator with support back home. And if you're getting a sense that you can vaguely recall having seen this yourself, Burgess Meredith was probably the, he was kind of in the control and command center. And depending on what week you saw the regular TV show, it might have been Doug McClure or Hugh O'Brien as the lead researching detective. I think they had three that they alternated. And if I'm not mistaken, Hugh O'Brien was the man on the street in the pilot for that particular show, Probe being the TV movie. And another um, pilot that I think I'd throw out there, a couple of them that have failed pilots. Again, just because the network spends the money to shoot a pilot doesn't mean they're going to make the TV show. And it doesn't necessarily translate that a pilot shot shown on television and not turned into a TV series means the pilot was bad. It may just mean that it was the wrong time, the audience response wasn't good, or it may mean that uh, everybody loved it, including the audiences, but the, the TV network felt the special effects that would be required on a week-in, week-out basis wouldn't make sense from a budget perspective. So let me cite two. One that I'm frankly not surprised wasn't successful and wouldn't have lasted long on television even if it had succeeded because by the time Star Wars came out, science fiction, you know, people on another planet kind of plot lines were going to be completely squashed by the mammoth force of the original Star Wars. But it was called The Stranger. And essentially, The Stranger was a TV movie remake of a 1960s film that was called, I believe, Doppelganger internationally, but in America was released as The Far Side of the Sun. And the idea is that an astronaut has gone off course somehow and landed on a planet that should be Earth. It looks like Earth. It calls itself Earth. Everything about it is Earth, but he quickly realizes that it's not his Earth and that he has now been stranded on a planet where the government that he's living in is very totalitarian and he can't just come forward and say who he is or he's going to be you know, treated like, a, <laughs> treated like a disease that needs to be eradicated. And uh, Glenn Corbett was in the lead role of this. And, you know, things like there's two moons in the sky and um, being a right-handed person makes him part of a very small minority that everyone on this planet is left-handed. And, you know, some of the conceits, scientific conceits, were that this planet rotates the opposite way that our planet does and that the seasons don't match up to the calendar. 
and essentially became uh, an escape from the government plot line where most of the pilot was this guy trying to get away, uh, trying to find a way back home. And, you know, uh, it's a pilot. He's not going to succeed in getting back home because there was going to be a TV series where week after week after week he was going to be escaping from the authorities and spending an entire TV series trying to find a way back home. But I will tell you that I enjoyed The Stranger as a made-for-TV movie, despite the fact that it was directly and intentionally derivative of a previous film, and despite the fact that it wasn't picked up and turned into a TV series of its own. And it's exactly this kind of film, which if I found it on a shelf somewhere, or on a website, or um, on YouTube, I would find the time to watch it and the money to get it, because first of it, obviously, it's nostalgia. But second, there's something pretty special about these moments in time that, that flashed and then went away. Because these aren't getting rerun every day on TV. These aren't part of things that you'll find on American movie classics. Uh, a network like AMC doesn't consider these to be classics of American filmmaking. And on one level, they're unmistakably right. Another one of the failed pilots was, uh, has the name Irwin Allen attached to it. Now, if you're not familiar with Irwin Allen, and I'm probably going to get some of this wrong because I associate an entire genre with him, so I might give him credit for things he had nothing to do with. But when you think of what we call the disaster movie, movies like Earthquake and Flood and The Towering Inferno and The Poseidon Adventure, that's who Irwin Allen is. And Irwin Allen made two different pilots for the same TV show concept called City Beneath the Sea. I have recently been able to acquire a copy of City Beneath the Sea from the website warnerarchives.com. That's uh, as in Warner Brothers, uh, warnerarchives.com. I mentioned earlier the Barbara Eden film, The Stranger Within. They've got that as well. And they have a few other of these made-for-TV movies that broadcast during this era, whether they belong, whether they ultimately showed on NBC, CBS, or ABC. The connection is that Warner has the rights to them, therefore Warner can put them out. And putting them out on a website with archives in the name helps people like me, the customer, find a website like this. And I don't hesitate to encourage people to go on to warnerarchives.com and take a look around. You might find some of your memories available for sale on DVD for the first time ever. And for me, City Beneath the Sea was one of those because the plot was that we had developed a, uh, an underground city as I'm the United States of America, but far enough in the future that the politics were a little bit different. And there was a, uh, a reason for it because, you know, constructing a city of that sort in the bottom of the ocean for no other good reason would be nuts, would be a waste of money. But no, there was actually a good reason for it in terms of natural resources and um, protecting the U.S. gold supply or the world gold standard or something like that. But the plot uses enough gadgets and gizmos to keep it interesting from a sci-fi perspective. The human element isn't too melodramatic, and you've got good enough actors in key roles. I mean, Joseph Cotton is in there uh, as one of the elderly members of the city beneath the sea. Well worth watching. Before I leave NBC and go on to the other two networks, I want to talk about some of the huge game-changing decisions that broadcast on NBC. I don't want to give that network credit for deciding to do it because I don't know that that's true. But I do know that the first made-for-TV film to show in two parts, part one tonight, part two tomorrow, or part one this week, part two next week, we take this for granted today. This happens all the time. But this is before we had a word for miniseries. And the word miniseries was not used for this film. Back in 1971, a made-for-TV movie called Vanished. Pretty much a telefilming of a Fletcher Nebel novel. And this one, I think I actually will read from the Alvin Murill resource book, just to give you a sense of what the plot was about. Remember that in 1971, we're talking pre-Watergate. 
Vanished is described as a thriller about the mysterious disappearance of a senior presidential advisor. The first long-form TV movie shown in two parts, where the actual running time minus commercials was about three hours and ten minutes, paved the way for subsequent film miniseries. Both Richard Woodmark in his TV acting debut and you know, Robert Young received Emmy nominations for the work. So highly acclaimed television work of what was essentially a four-hour movie shown in two parts. The history is, this was the first film that was actually come back tomorrow for part two. And I've seen Vanished on TV both in this two-part form, but I think I originally saw it at a time when it was in rerun, and it was just one solid block of four-plus hours of TV. And as I recall, pretty compelling. The other landmark moment for NBC might be described as the actual first miniseries of all time, the first shown over consecutive days, intentionally identified as a multi-part television drama, was QB7. This is 1974, three years before Roots, and it starred Ben Gazzara and Anthony Hopkins in the key roles, taking the plot of the Leon Uris novel and putting it on television with pretty good budget and very good production values. I personally am not sure that a five or six hour movie is something that I would necessarily call entertaining, but this is a film that I've subsequently found on Netflix, borrowed and watched. And that'll close the book on NBC. Here in just a minute, I'm going to get to the other two networks where CBS deservedly isn't going to get a lot of time. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the library, Books You Should Read is coming back to simplysyndicated.com, this time with a little bit of a different approach, but still fueled by you. So send in your reviews of books you love or even books you don't love. We'd like to hear them all. Meanwhile, I'll be hosting every week. My name is Kennedy, and I'll be talking to you very soon. Let's not forget that as I work my way through here, we're going to tie back to Dan Carlin in a very direct way. But first, it's safe to say that the TV movie work being done during the same era by CBS, by and large, didn't grab me. There's um, high-quality work there. I'm not criticizing the artistic merit. 1974 included the autobiography of Miss Jean Pittman. This was a fictional character, but the film was shown as if it was a true story and dealt with... um, a black woman's experience of several decades of American life where crucial historical events were taking place, things that I think I would describe as civil rights events. And I think I was just too young for that kind of drama, but beyond any doubt, extremely well made. And the other piece of CBS that I really have tremendous respect for might be the number one film, now that I've seen recently seen Run a Crooked Mile, the number one made-for-TV movie that I want to see that I haven't seen and don't recall well enough that I need to see because I don't remember it well enough, was a CBS made-for-TV movie, a pilot, for a show that never happened called Hunter. And the idea behind Hunter was that you have this, uh, this elite government agent who's engaging in operations, sometimes domestically, to try to stop you know, what we might today refer to as terrorist threats from happening. And in the pilot to this film, what I do remember was that there was a race car plot line going on, that he was intervening in something that involved um, auto racing or some form of, of sport racing. And it also involved a brainwashing scheme. And the thing that I will never forget in my mind, John Vernon, who would later be the principal in Animal House, was the lead actor for this show. And I just remember him or some other character over and over chanting the lines, get rid of the monkeys, get rid of the monkeys, get rid of the monkeys. That was Hunter from 1973 on CBS. And again, sort of a Mission Impossible flair. 
So in the movies that I've cited so far, we've got government conspiracies, we've got secret government agencies, we've got courtroom dramas like QB7, disaster films like City Beneath the Sea, um, pilots for movies that would ultimately become cop dramas, wartime, uh, you know, let's um, save the children from a war zone and the longest hundred miles. So you get a sense that there's a variety there, but I think ABC actually took the variety now, with movies like Killdozer, where an alien force takes over a construction site on a remote island, really took it to its extreme. Because I've mentioned just a couple things on the ABC series that were just really um, more edgy in terms of what they would do with drama, what they would do with thrillers. I don't have a lot of comedies that I can recall from the period, so I'm not going to be signing those. I think they were there. But again, this was aimed at an adult audience. The idea was that the Tuesday, the Tuesday night movie of the week might start 9 o'clock Eastern, 8 o'clock Central Time, and the kids might be awake for part of it, but it really wasn't necessarily aimed at a kid audience. The only ones in the series that I can distinctly recall watching and thinking they're trying to reach me as a viewer were the Nature Gone Wild things, uh, the killer bees, the swarms, the animals have escaped from the zoo, those kinds of, uh, of plot lines, of which there were a few. That gives you a sense of the variety. To give you a pretty good sense of the scope be tempted to, ref- to reference Wikipedia here for ABC Movie of the Week. They listed as a weekly television anthology series featuring made-for-TV movies that aired on the ABC network in various permutations from 1969 to 1975, and essentially being in the production hands of a young executive named Barry Diller. So you get a sense of kind of that, but the main thing is to scroll down to the bottom of the page and just get a list of the number of movies that were filmed on television during this period from 69 to 76, actually, just to get a sense of how many films were there, and if you recognize any of them, or the few that actually have a link you can click to, the variety of films that were there. My other notes regarding ABC, I want to start, actually, with ABC talking about the miniseries. Because even though QB7 from NBC might have been the first miniseries, the one that I think really drove it home, maybe better than anything else represents the genre, came on ABC in 1976, and it was Rich Man, Poor Man. This aired in both February and March, over not just a couple of weeks like Roots would do, but maybe even three weeks. It's stretched out over a period of time. Based on a book by Irwin Shaw, and I'm not saying I remember this fondly enough to even pretend to recommend it, but it's worth taking a quick look at Rich Man, Poor Man as the first quote-unquote real miniseries. This is well before Lonesome Dove. Rich Man, Poor Man actually is the kind of movie that you would see made on uh, made for TV for cable today with a plot line about... Uh, two brothers with very different personalities from different sides of the tracks in love with the same woman, um, spanning over decades, you know, very much a soap opera kind of a plot line. Of course, it doesn't make sense to talk about ABC's contribution to the miniseries in particular without mentioning Roots from January 1977. Uh, the television version of the Alex Haley novel, fairly impressive. Again, high production values, good cast list, very impactful storytelling. I remember hearing during that period of time in the late 70s that whenever Roots would broadcast, there might be racial unrest in some of the American southern cities where black viewers would react angrily to the things that they were seeing on TV and white viewers either unaware or more often very well aware. This was a very watched show, not being sufficiently sensitive to the reaction that you would have in a case where a quasi history is being shown and that history uh, opens up some old wounds. So Roots, very impactful um, for ABC. 
I guess I should give a shout out here as well to the podcast called Books You Should Read, available on Simply Syndicated. There's got to be a feed out there somewhere with one of the early episodes where Kennedy Gordon, the host of the show, talks about the book roots and a lot of the controversy over the writing of the book roots, because this is another one of these quote unquote based on a true story situations where when I see the words based on a true story, um, I suddenly get a little bit nervous, either that the quality of the show is going to be bad because based on a true story is sometimes used by filmmakers as an excuse to put things on TV that don't make dramatic sense and use the quote unquote truth of it as an excuse or justification. Or in this case, whether the uh, truth of the true story is something that we shouldn't be challenging. The Books You Should Read episode about Roots is outstanding. However, I didn't want to talk about ABC's contribution to made-for-TV movies, and frankly hold them up as the best of kind, based on the miniseries, neither Rich Man, Poor Man, nor Roots. No, what I want to do is I want to talk about that actual telecast, what I experienced as Tuesday Night Movie of the Week, by doing a top ten list. And I don't want to do the top ten list in kind of reverse order, counting down to the best one. Because frankly, I don't think that is going to create much suspense. When I tell you the one that I've ranked number one, and this is my list, you're going to find out quickly that this is so obvious that it really isn't going to be a surprise to anyone. Instead, I want to count from one down to ten, partly because I don't see that much of a big quality difference. It's not like you hit a point where there's a line that after this is just crap and he's filling out a list of 10. Not that at all. Instead, what I want to do is count down to it because when I get to the last movie on my list, we're going to start talking about the different drummer. So first on my list, 1971 Duel, filmed by Steven Spielberg. If you're unaware of it, please get aware of it. This is an absolutely fantastic film that's essentially a two-character adventure piece. Dennis Weaver stars as, a, as an automobile driver who finds himself in a life-and-death struggle with a truck driver who has a beef that I don't think is ever really explained in the film. One of the, uh, again, Steven Spielberg great pieces of film in the sense of film editing, where the suspense is heightened. You're only dealing with a couple of main characters. In fact, the cars are as much characters, the vehicles are as much characters as the actors are, and yet incredibly suspenseful. You wouldn't think that a 80 to 90 minute, you know, television film about, you know, a driver trying to get home and a truck driver trying to kill him would be that compelling. But, you know, this is this is an early sign to the world of what Steven Spielberg would be able to do from a suspense perspective. Number 2 also from 1971, Brian's Song. Now, if you're encountering this made-for-TV movie stuff in the very early part of the 70s. And you see, you know, not necessarily in back-to-back weeks, but in quick succession, Brian's song and Duel, you've got to feel like, yeah, you're seeing some quality filmmaking here. And then on a budget that isn't huge, and with some of the actors that we know now, I mean, we know who James Kahn is. This is no surprise. His performance as Brian Piccolo and Brian's song was at the time an indication of the greatness that would be to come. Or at least, you know, how quality his work can be when he's acting. Uh, Brian Song, the story, Brian Piccolo, the Chicago Bears player who befriends Gail Sayers, black player in the NFL, and then falls, uh, falls to terminal illness. Uh, you still hear people today cite Brian Song as a movie that they cannot get through without a strong emotional reaction. And most people probably think of Brian Song as being a theatrical film that they just encountered on TV for the first time. But no, this was part of this series of ABC Movies of the Week. 
Number three, likely to not be known by very many people, but I rate it as my favorite, frankly, of all these. I don't, I'm not going to call it the best. It doesn't compete with those first two. But a Cold Night's Death from 1973, originally televised as Chill Factor, was another one of these tight character studies where the main actors, in fact, probably the only people that you really see alive in the film, are Eli Wallach and Robert Culp, um, playing Arctic research scientists who've come to a base that uh, has been abandoned, for want of a better word. The scientists who are working there, at least one of them has died, and the uh, the base is in uh, it's just is dormant. So they show up, they try to reestablish you know key operations, and then try to work on the mystery of what happened that caused the apparent suicide of one of these scientists who were actually based there to do research on how the uh, weather and the location have impact on primates. There's enough science in the science fiction to keep it interesting from a boy's perspective. There's a lot of good character acting to keep it interesting from a girl's perspective. And the ending is absolutely fantastic. One of those films where the second I saw it end, I wanted to see it again. Number four, I refer to A Cold Night's Death not really being a thriller, not compared to Trilogy of Terror. Trilogy of Terror was a 1975 made-for-TV movie, and the first one of these made-for-TV movies that I recall having a parental warning on it. I mentioned my parents being very cautious about the the parental advisory warnings on films that were theatrically released. Somehow I got permission to watch Trilogy of Terror, or I was able to watch it without permission. In this case, it's just a made-for-TV movie. What's the big deal? Well, every one of the three vignettes that make up this anthology film all of them featuring Karen Black as an actress, had a sexual subtext of some sort to them. There were moments in the film that were either very violent or built on a pretty pretty sexual plot line. And of course, the one everyone remembers, and the one you'll have no trouble finding on YouTube, is the third and final in the series, where she is a young single woman having trouble in her relationships and uh, a bad relationship with her mother, who buys an African Zulu doll of some sort on the street from a street vendor, and when its its belt falls off of it, it comes to life. And the doll, armed with a toy knife, but a very real metal toy knife, knows nothing but to hunt and kill, and she finds herself in a life-and-death struggle with this doll. Depending on how you look at it, this is either a terrifying movie or an incredibly hilarious movie. But in some ways, that describes the entire slasher genre. I won't pretend to speak chapter and verse about slasher films. It's not my thing. But if there were slasher films before 1975, I never saw them. And Trilogy of Terror was originally made for TV. Number five is going to sound familiar. Uh, It was a vehicle made uh, in 1972 called A Short Walk to Daylight. And it's going to sound familiar because its plot is essentially the plot of its remake, the Sylvester Stallone vehicle from a decade or so ago, just called Daylight. Um, Some sort of natural disaster happens. There's an earthquake. There's a cave-in. People are trapped inside the subway. And A Short Walk to Daylight is kind of like the Poseidon Adventure. How can a charismatic leader get a group of bickering people to safety through the rubble? I remember it mainly for the acting of Carol Lindley. And I honestly can't tell you whether Carol Lindley's performance was just simply brilliant or whether I just liked Carol Lindley. You will know her, though, as the younger um, girl, not the teenager, but the young woman who befriended Red Buttons in the Poseidon Adventure. Um, She found herself in a lot of Disaster of the Week films during this period in time. And A Short Walk to Daylight was a pretty good one. Number six, Go Ask Alice, 1973, uh, basically an anti-drug film, again taken from the presumably autobiographical diary-style novel of the same name, Go Ask Alice, uh, about a teenage girl 
uh, who's runaway and dealing with drug dependency issues. 1973 also brings us number seven, The Man Without a Country. This was, I think, Cliff Robertson in the semi-patriotic story by an author named Hale, I believe, dealing with somebody who has given up his uh, nationality, uh, walked away angrily from his country, and the consequences of being a man without a country. I remember this as being kind of a heavy-handed patriotic drama, but it's on my list because I'd like to see it again, and I think the acting was quite good. Number eight, a military show called Death Race. Now, yeah, anymore, you see the name Death Race and you think of the, the cult film, you know, with, where there's actually a, a death race going on. This one was uh, an allied plane that's been disabled and its injured commander playing a cat and mouse game with a Nazi tank somewhere in the North African desert. A 1973 death race. And I remember it being, again, it's hard to do a military film where you just have a couple of actors and you have a limited budget. So you're not dealing with lots of explosions. And lots of very expensive props like vehicles, like, you know, planes shooting each other down and all that. In this case, I think the plane was grounded and the tank was pretty well functional. And you you essentially have a good guys versus bad guys storyline set with allies versus Nazis. But in this case, maybe just one ally and one Nazi in the desert. Number nine, Trapped. I've got to apologize here for this one. This one probably is not as high quality as all the others. And um, it's undoubtedly got a pretty high silliness factor. But one of the movies that I got from Warner Brothers, uh, WarnerArchives.com was a series of uh, Doberman Gang films. Uh, it was one DVD set with two of them in there. And in those made-for-TV movies, which I'm not citing here on my top ten list, you have uh, bank robbers who figure out that if they train the dogs to rob the bank, they have very little risk on their part, and they might be able to get away scot-free because everyone's afraid of big, ferocious Doberman. And if you can train the Doberman um, to go in, disable the guard, um, use its use its mouth to hand over a, a note demanding money, put satchel bags on its back, that kind of story. And there were two or three of those Doberman gang films made. Trapped was a little bit different. In this case, a guy is in the restroom of a de- major department store. And for whatever reason, this department store has decided that rather than spending money on um, police officers to roam the aisles at night, making sure that no intruders break into the department store, that, that any sort of, you know, anything goes wrong. They just every night lock the doors from the outside in to where no one who's out can get in, but also no one who's in can get out. And then they just release a whole pack of Dobermans to roam around the department store. Um, if there's any intruder or frat matter, even a cat or a mouse, the Dobermans will take care of it. The plot line is inherently ridiculous. And on some level, the storytelling itself is, is so bad it's funny. But I, I can't help but to be charmed by this ridiculous storyline. And its impact on um, James Brolin, I believe, is the man who uh, gets himself mugged. And when he finally comes to, realizes that he's not going to be able to get out of the store because he's completely locked in. And he also has to you know, try to evade all these you know, marauding dogs. Silly in the extreme. Finally, number 10. 1974, The Morning After. This is another one of those films, like Hunter from the CBS series, that I don't remember well enough to give it a great plot summary. But essentially, you have Dick Van Dyke as a successful executive with a stable family life who dips into alcoholism. And his journey, this is made-for-TV drama now, his journey from, you know, 
having things seemingly pretty well together to letting drinking take control of his life um, leads to literally everything completely falling apart. And as I recall, it's like if you took just a little bit of the kind of storytelling style of Michelangelo Antonioni, a very spare, straightforward, uh, for want of a better word, even depressing way of dealing with inevitable consequences. Uh, films from Antonioni like Red Desert or La Ventura would be the kind that I'd be referring to. I'm not going to give the morning after credit for having that kind of artistry, but I remember it, and I remember it since 1974. I remember seeing this film on its broadcast television debut and being surprised because I had only seen Dick Van Dyke as a as an actor in comic sitcom roles. I don't remember seeing him in any movie short of maybe Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Mary Poppins. And the only television shows I'd seen him in were were either guest appearances or on his own Dick Van Dyke show where his roles were inherently for laughs. And in this one, he plays it serious and he does a good job. But there's another actor in the film that caught my eye for also doing a very good job as the wife in this storyline of this family being ripped apart by the by the realistically portrayed consequences of alcoholism. And the actress who played that wife is Lynn Carlin. And Lynn Carlin is the mother of Dan Carlin, our different drummer this week. All right, I mentioned that it would be a very direct connection from the actress in the movie The Morning After to our different drummer, Dan Carlin is the oldest child of Ed and Lynn Carlin, and Lynn, the Academy Award-nominated actress for the movie Faces, where she appeared in the John Cassavetes film, the very in-your-face Bergman-esque drama that he would put together during that time when he was making Shadows and Faces. And in Faces, she played the suicidal wife in one of the disintegrating couples that John Cassavetes focused his intense camera work upon. The Wikipedia page for her describes her as a former secretary-turned-actress, and I will give her credit. I remember the movie The Morning After as much for her work as for his. Now, of course, today, my esteem for Lynn Carlin has a lot more to do with her son, Dan. Dan Carlin is a podcaster, also referred to as an American political commentator and an amateur historian. And those credits, I think, work quite well when you describe the two shows that I listen to on a regular basis. Hardcore History would be the historian piece of it. And the, the political perspective he provides makes common sense such a wonderful show. Dan Carlin has a very distinct vocal style. When you hear him speak, you won't forget it. If you're uninterested in the topic from one week to the next, he is still interesting to listen to because he has a talented voice. And if you are interested, you can quickly find that uh, an hour has gone by faster than you ever might imagine because he propels the story forward. Whether it's a story about, you know, um, battlefield scenes in World War II, whether it's a story about ancient Rome, or whether it's the modern story that we're actually living in right now. Dan Carlin has a perspective that I think uh, more people should hear. I want to cite a couple specific episodes and just give you a sense for what's available. If you found this podcast, you're clearly familiar with podcasts. You can find both of these shows at www.dancarlin.com. C-A-R-L-I-N, Carlin. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Show has in it, right now, probably looks like you know more than a dozen if, uh, if he has a, a year's worth of things on the feed, right now I'm looking at episodes uh, 18 or 19 through 36. So more than a dozen shows that are out there. And there's more, probably more like 40 available from an annual perspective on the Common Sense feed. There are three of these that do not leave my player. 
One of them goes back more than a year now. Um, so Sick Politics, episode number 152, talking about the questions of what does it mean to manage healthcare better than we do it today? And at the time, what was about to be healthcare reform? Uh, again, I think when you listen to this, you're going to find this person is, like me, neither liberal nor conservative, but perhaps considered liberal by conservatives that he aggravates and considered conservative by liberals that uh, he aggravates. His style, which he refers to as being of a neo-pragmatist approach, um, I call it radical moderate. I think that there's key differences between those two, but there's plenty of common ground to be had there. The other ones, ones that I'm going to give some examples from, are one called Money Talks. The Money Talks episode of Common Sense is just about a year old now. Uh, my feed shows it as being January 27th of last year. And the other one, just this week. Yes, just this week I've heard an episode that I'm going to leave on the player for quite some time um, called Divine Divides, episode 191. What kind of perspective are you going to get from Dan Carlin? Well, first off, unlike a disappointingly high number of both newspaper, radio, and television quote-unquote journalists who are out there now, do not start first with what is the perspective that my political persuasion wants me to advocate. I'm not going to keep this as simple as saying that a lot of people are advocating a Democrat perspective because they're Democrats, because it's too simple. It's more of a political ideology than that and say, well, I've got this neoliberal approach or I've got this neoconservative approach. And whatever it is I say is going to have less to do with the truth, less to do with what I can truly defend, less to do even with what I might actually believe and more to do with what the quote unquote party line is. That's something that Dan Carlin will essentially blow up and move on from. In Money Talks, he introduces some delightfully radical ideas about what we might do differently with things like campaign finance reform and flat out the way we run elections. And one of those ideas is that every single person you talk to, it is very hard to find somebody who doesn't think that as a country we spend, I would say, waste way too much money on elections. In Dan Carlin's Money Talk show, he says, well, how do we fix that? How do we fix that in a way that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to find to be constitutional? And the idea that he put out there, which, again, I find to be provocative, and in this case, provocative is really, really good. What if we said, I can't tell people not to give campaigns money because the Supreme Court might call that unconstitutional. And I've got a tricky road ahead of me if I try to control how much money campaigns spend or how they spend their money. But what I can do is I can say, listen... Every year, depending on how we do the formula, at least three political candidates, typically going to be both the Republican and the Democrat and the best of the rest, but at least three candidates, depending on how you do the formula, are going to end up with the same amount of money. Because you can't stop the American people from constitutionally deciding to give every single candidate at the end of the fundraising cycle the same funds. So if somebody goes out there and raises $500 million to spend on their campaign, we can't tell people they shouldn't have given that person money. That's, that's going to violate the First Amendment rights, at least pur purportedly it's going to violate the First Amendment rights of those donors. And you can't necessarily do much to control how the candidate spends the money because ultimately you're going to have a problem with a sitting government of some sort, even if it's the judicial branch, a sitting government trying to stop people from running for office in a way that might contradict the views of that government. It smacks of totalitarianism. But how is it in any way unconstitutional for our government to have a rule that says, after all the fundraising is done, the three candidates who are in the lead by some standard are all going to have the same amount of funds? It's not a free speech violation to make sure that your opponent has every opportunity to speak to. 
It is not a free speech violation in any way whatsoever. And as Dan talks through that in his Money Talks episode, which is I think I think I mentioned was um, number one hundred and sixty nine in the Common Sense series, you get a lot of benefits that way. And you know, he wanders through kind of the intricacies of that, and he also deals with some other questions like, okay, maybe maybe the government can decide that it's not a bribe for me to give a candidate a lot of money to do what I want, but we can certainly pass a law that makes it illegal for the candidate to accept the money from me. That if I've got a First Amendment right to give a lavish gift to a, to a congressman who I hope is going to vote on a certain way to help my business or my company, maybe the U.S. Supreme Court's going to find that's perfectly okay. But I don't think the U.S. Supreme Court has much standing to for me as a citizen to come up with a law or a referendum of some sort that makes it an act of corruption for that candidate to accept that money. That at some place we've got to get a hold of the way people are buying influence in our government. And uh, Money Talks is all about that. Episode 190, a couple episodes back from what I'm recording right now called Viva La Tantrum, is very, very fun. It's one of the longest episodes out on his feed, but it's very fun to hear. Because if you don't know much about Dan's early experience as a television journalist working for a local affiliate in Los Angeles, California, this is definitely one to hear. It answers questions about, well, what is Dan's background? Um, Is he more of a journalist than Greg is? He's absolutely and unmistakably more of a journalist than Greg is. He has more practical experience in the field. Where I dabbled a very short period of time in newspapers, he actually worked, not dabbled in my mind for um, television. And he was a television journalist at the time of the Rodney King situation and that that altercation with the Los Angeles police and all of the stuff that happened afterward. If you're unfamiliar with the Rodney King case by name, I'm not going to spoil it to you. I recommend you listen to the show and hear a funny and fascinating firsthand account from somebody who was there at the time. And as both a perspective about you know what the courts did and what the police did and the aftermath of all that, but also a perspective about what it means to be a journalist today in retrospect to events like that and how those kind of moments in history have changed journalism for the better or for the worst. And then most recently, Divine Divides. I won't, I won't presume to step on a current show that's out there. Uh, you should listen to Common Sense. You should get a sense of it. And if you listen to the most recent one, the show 191, you're going to get a good, you're going to get a good feel for it. That uh, Dan Carlin actually takes a very radically different approach than the Bush administration or the Obama administration has and said, you know what, maybe this war on terror has a lot more to do with religion than we say. That maybe the political expediency of pretending that this really isn't about Islam versus Christianity doesn't work. Because even though it probably isn't about Islam versus Christianity, he explores some current political thought that's been published by others about whether it makes sense to talk about this as being Islam the religion versus the secular West. And it's well worth a listen. Bottom line, can't recommend Dan Carlin enough. I did send him an email when I realized that I was coming up on this opportunity to talk about uh, made-for-TV movies in the 70s, because as I was going through my research, and I said, you know, who was the actress who played the suffering wife of Dick Van Dyke in The Morning After? I remember her, but I don't remember much more about her. And that research led me to her being Lynn Carlin, and a quick uh, IMDb check confirming that, and a Wikipedia search telling me that Lynn Carlin was the mother of Dan Carlin. I thought, whoa, all right, I got to move Dan Carlin up the list. We've got to talk about Dan Carlin right now, partly because of the quality of work that's been put out here very recently on the Common Sense Show, and partly because I didn't have a really compelling different drummer 
to talk about when I wanted to talk about uh, made-for-TV movies. Picking any one of those producers or directors would be in some ways dismissive of the rest. You can't throw a hat to Steven Spielberg as a made-for-TV movie director. It just doesn't work. And to pick from any of the others makes it sound like there was only a couple of superstars, but there weren't. During that period, especially in the ABC series... Barry Diller went out and got himself some good talent. And maybe they haven't done anything on the theatrical stage, but what they did on the television stage holds up. And likewise, I think Lynn Carlin's work absolutely holds up. So I I did what I consider to be the courteous thing, and I sent Dan a quick email and said, hey, really tempted to do an inappropriate conversation show connecting you with your mom. Are you okay with that? I mean, I don't know the family history. This might be this might be an unwelcome advance. But Dan said, no, it'd be great. I'd be honored. Uh, uh, thanks, for, thanks for talking about my mom's work. Thanks for talking about my work. And you know what, sir? You are more than just welcome. Honored to call you a different drummer. Truthfully, I just had a couple of goals in today's show. One was to trigger the memory of people who might be about the same age I am, who might have seen some of these shows, just to say, hey, can we share a nostalgic moment? Can this be kind of a kumbaya thing between us? But the other one was to say, hey, you know what? When you look at the plethora of cable networks that are out there, when you look at some of the drivel and the dreck that we're being fed as, quote-unquote, new TV series on an annual basis, can somebody resurrect these shows? Can maybe an American Movie Classics 2 cover the TV aspect of this? There's good stuff out there that most people are going to be thinking of when they look at the, the name of this show. Stuff that I didn't even bother to cover. You know, the day after, dealing with nuclear aftermath. Or something about Amelia, which was maybe the, the most hard-hitting original TV movie dealing with something like incest. You know, I'm not talking about those shows at all, but I'm not going to disrespect them. Couldn't a cable channel come along and do sort of this sort of retrospective reruns of these kinds of shows? They've got to be cheap. They've got to be almost free to get. Because as far as I can tell, the studios that produced them and the networks that originally aired them do not care about these films. Of course, if you've got a different perspective, you can put some dialogue into this conversation by emailing me at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. And the comment functionality is enabled on the show notes at the website inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. That's the Podbean site for this show, Inappropriate Conversations. Music by Kevin McLeod. This show is a proud member of the Pride 48 Podcasting Network. Check out other great podcasts at pride48.com slash shows.